Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So where are we going this time, Bob? G is for Mike Garson. Or Michael David Garson, born 29th of July 1945. So, after graduating from Brooklyn College with a music degree in 1970, Mike Garson was a member of the rock country jazz band Brethren. That sounds wrong, doesn't it, mate? You, you, you know, I mean, I want to go back and check the research here because yeah. anybody who forms a rock country jazz band is just what's known as hedging the bets. It's not even a good, uh, you know, jazz fusion name band, is it? It's a terrible name. <laughs> well, it doesn't sound it. With a guy called Rick Marotta, mm. who's an American drummer and percussionist, and he also appeared on recordings by the likes of Aretha Franklin, Carly Simon, Steely Dan, James Taylor, Paul Simon, John Lennon, Hall and Oates, Peter Gabriel, Kenny G, the Jacksons. Crosby, Stills, Nash, Warrens, even, and Linda Ronstadt. Wow. So, he's, so he's a legend. That's it? impressive. So the Brethren recorded two albums on the Tiffany label, also started appearing at various jazz clubs around New York City. So this is uh, from an interview that Mike Garson did uh, with a guy called Martin DeHaan in 2008. He's talking about the musical uh, formative years, I suppose. He said he had three lessons with Herbie Hancock at one point, a long six-hour session with uh, Bill Evans. He says that Hal Overton was a big influence on him, who was uh, Thelonious Monk's big band arranger, and he used to visit him right after uh, Tony Williams. He'd go and see Bill Evans all the time at the Village Vanguard and then Miles Davis and John Coltrane at the half note. So it's really steeped in uh, modern jazz here. Yeah, he said, I got to play with Elvin Jones in 1970 in Greenwich Village because his piano player fell off the bandstand drunk. Wow. So they dragged him out into the street and the saxophone player, Steve Grossman, invited me into the band. At the time, I also used to play a lot with saxophone player David Liebman a guy I used to go to high school with. So, so fortunate, really. Yeah. He, you know, they had a, a drunken piano player and he knew somebody in the band. So, <laughs> Opportunism, that's what it is. So you think, what's all this got to do with David Bowie? Well, let's get to it. So also working in the jazz clubs around that time was Annette Peacock, who Bowie had invited to join the Spiders at one point, but uh, she declined. Yeah. But instead, she decided to recommend this local jazz pianist that she knew, which is Mike Garson. <laughs> 
So again, Mike says, Annette was married to jazz bass player Gary Peacock and after that to jazz pianist Paul Blay and somehow she'd heard of me, had studied a lot of avant-garde music, classical stuff, plus I heard a lot of avant-garde jazz music, Cecil Taylor, Ornette Coleman and such, and I could just play that kind of music very naturally. I was very fortunate because Annette Peacock recommended me to Bowie. Now, apparently, he didn't know this until decades later. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't... I, if that was me, once he was off there and doing it, mm. and in the band, I'd be, uh, I'd be ringing him up every day just, just to remind him. So, the call's made, uh, an audition is arranged, held by Mick Ronson here, who is, you've got to say, the most accomplished musician in Bowie's band at that point, and oh, an yeah. amazing arranger. This, this is a great story here. In Mike Garson's words, he said, Mick Ronson conducted the audition by the piano in the famous RCA studio in New York. Bowie was in the recording booth and they both had the microphone on so he wasn't right next to me maybe he says because when he didn't like me he wouldn't have to deal with the embarrassment but he says Mick who was a well-trained musician also a great pianist gave me the chord changes to the song changes put it up on the music stand and I think I played only six or eight bars six or seven seconds and he says right you've got the gig just terrific, isn't it, that story? Yeah, and, and he does uh, regale with the uh, tale of the fact that he'd not heard of Davy Bowie an hour before yeah. all of this had happened. He just like really turned around so quickly. He didn't have a clue, and it wasn't his scene, as we know. He was working in the jazz world, and, and Davy Bowie had not crossed his path at all. And one of the reasons he said later that he took the job, he just wanted to escape you know, what was being a very sort of heroin-influenced jazz scene, just to get out of that little scene, I suppose. I mean, and looking at it, he went from the heroin scene into cocaine, yeah. into a world of cocaine, didn't he? Which is another story. So, Bowie said of uh, Mike Garson, he said, the rock, best rock pianist in the world because he doesn't play rock. That's a good point. And he says, it's pointless to talk about his ability as a pianist. He is exceptional. However, there are very, very few musicians, let alone pianists, who naturally understand the movement and free thinking necessary to hurl themselves into experimental or traditional areas of music, sometimes ironically at the same time. Mike does this with such enthusiasm that it makes my heart glad just to be in the same room with him. Yeah, great. And Tony Visconti, I like this as well. He said, Mike Garson listens attentively, then plays whatever the hell he wants. So Mike Garson's discography with David Bowie starts off with Aladdin Sane. Pinups, Diamond Dogs. David Live. Young Americans. Ziggy Stardust, The Motion Picture. Black Tie, White Noise. The Buddha of Suburbia. The live album, Santa Monica, 72. Outside. Earthling. Bowie at the Beeb. Reality. Hours. VH1 Storytellers. And the Reality Tour album. G is also for Philip Glass or, if you come from down south, Philip Glass. Yes. So Philip Glass was born in Baltimore, Maryland, January 1937. Really interesting backstory. His family were Jewish immigrants from Lithuania. His dad owned a record store. His mum was a librarian. And in his memoir, Glass describes how at the end of the Second World War, his mum aided Jewish Holocaust survivors, including recent arrivals to America, to stay at their home until they could find a job and a place to live. What an amazing family. Incredible. Even his sister, Sheppy, would later do similar work as a member of the International Rescue Committee. Yeah, well, we salute them, definitely. So uh, Philip Glass developed his love of music from his dad and began building up a huge record collection from the unsold records in his dad's store, including classical music like Bartok and Schoenberg and Beethoven and Schubert. Yeah, he studied at the Juilliard School of Music, where uh, the keyboard was his main instrument of choice. After leaving there in 1962, he went to Pittsburgh and he worked as a school-based composer in residence at the uh, school public system. And then he also moved to Paris and became involved in experimental theatre and then Glass worked in late 1965, early 1966 as a music director and composer on the film score for Chappaqua 
Is that close enough? Nicely put, yeah. Uh, with Ravi Shankar and Ala Raka. And then he started writing pieces based on repetitive structures of Indian music. He arrived in New York City in March 67. He went to see a performance of works by Steve Reich, which left a really, really lasting impression on him. And he started simplifying his style, hence his interest in minimalism. Although Glass himself prefers to call what he does music with repetitive structures. Yeah, I did a bit of that. But, uh, I mean, going back to New York, like I say, with Steve Reich anyway, and mm. also John Cage, obviously, yeah, coming yeah. back to America for John Cage, they were at the heart of all that, the yeah. same kind of beliefs that he had. Yeah, and Lamont Young and all those kind of people. There's so much work in his back catalogue. We can't kind of go through it all, but some of the key works in Philip Glass's catalogue, music in 12 parts, Einstein on the Beach, which was an opera with Robert Wilson that he was doing in 1975, uh, film scores, Hamburger Hill, the one that I can't pronounce that starts with a K that we everybody knows he does in, did in 1982. He did The Truman Show and Kundun as well, which was with uh, Martin Scorsese, which he was nominated for uh, an Oscar. Right, OK. And then we get to... This is interesting. So even when he's doing like stuff like Music in 12 Parts and Einstein on the Beach, he's thinking about his other career. So he starts a moving company with his cousin. He also works as a plumber for a while and a cab driver in New York between 73 and 78. You'd have to say that, looking at that, he mustn't have been overly confident at being able to earn a wage doing what he was doing. But obviously mm. he was very left field and very brave, you know. Yeah. But I mean, he was saying like, you know, uh, oh, you never guessed who I had in the, in the back of the cab last week? Michael Nyman. Oh, yeah. You know, the composer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Remarkable. Remarkable. So he was probably a bit of a cult concern, but here's where the Bowie connection comes in. So both Bowie and Brian Eno had seen him play in London sort of turn of the 70s he was doing pieces like music in similar motion and music with changing parts which were given a hostile reception by critics maybe this is why he ended up as a plumber and a cabbie for a while because he just didn't think he was going to cut it but Bowie and Brian Eno loved what he was doing in fact uh, Eno described it as one of the most extraordinary musical experiences of my life so we're moving on now to Symphony Number no. 1, Low, also known as the Low Symphony, which was composed in 1992, and Philip Glass scored it for a full orchestra, and it had three movements. So there's Subterraneans, Sumar, and Warzawa. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, I played some of this on the radio, and you'd have to say that, I mean, it's quite unrecognisable from the, uh, the original, isn't yeah, it? That, I mean, yeah. And that's probably the point. There's no point in, in yeah. replicating it, but uh, you're looking for the kernels of inspiration mm. that came through, you know. And he, and he does recognise that. He, he says that, you know, for people listening to it they probably wonder where Davy Bowie comes yeah. into it and where I leave it kind of thing you know absolutely and the same went for let's see 1996 where he does the Heroes Symphony which is also known as Symphony Number no. 4 so uh, you've got sort of Heroes Sense of Doubt Sons of the Silent Age V2 Schneider that kind of thing the same sort of expressive idea you know of just taking Bowie's starting point and just running with it interesting I mean he did also work with people like Leonard Cohen Suzanne Vega uh, David Byrne and S Express, which um, I was staggered to discover. S Express, yeah. really? Okay. So, uh, in an interview with Philip Glass, he said, David and I first met in the early 70s. Can I just say, interview with me in 2001, I, was, I interviewed him. Oh, okay. really? Yeah. Right, okay. So, this is Philip Glass to Rob Hughes. David and I first met. Are you listening, Cloth Ears? David and I first met in early 1970s when I was playing in London. It was either 1971 or 1972, and he was just starting his music career. Then I started running into him when he began playing in New York I got very interested in what he and Brian Eno were doing at the time which was to create an art within the realm of popular music yeah what was he like what was he like to talk oh, to oh he was great I mean he was just uh, really gregarious you know, I wasn't sure what to expect I thought he might be slightly forbidding a bit, a little bit awkward we was just 
so, so sweet. Just a lovely guy. I'm very happy to talk about everything to do with Bowie. And he said, the thing that really impressed me most with David, and I've worked with many people over the years, is he had what sets all distinguished composers apart, which is talent. He said, that's the bottom line. I wanted to do this music because it was so good. I wish I could write melodies like him. What I did on Low and Heroes was to take his melodies, continue them, make them longer. But what was really interesting when we talked, and bear in mind, this was, uh, you know, it was January 2001. And he'd said, actually, I've been talking to David today about uh, doing a new project. This is a proposed version, you know, a symphonic version of Lodger. Right. So he says, um, one of the things we're thinking about is working with new material as well. Uh, what we did on Low and Heroes gave me the finished idea. What I'd like to do on Lodger, he said, was to get a, a more active collaboration using Lodger as the source. I think it'll have to take off in a new direction altogether. He said, David did his trilogy in three years. I'd love to finish mine 25 years later. And as we know, Philip Glass has finally got round to doing it. Mm. So, I mean, it's interesting, the word that he uses, using Lodger as the source. Mm. So that is, that is the key of it, really, isn't it? The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. G is also for George Murray. A quick synopsis for you here. American bass guitarist, best known for his work with David Bowie. Murray was part of Bowie's rhythm section from the mid-70s through to Scary Monsters in 1980 alongside drummer Dennis Davis and guitarist Carlos Alomar. Known as the damn trio, weren't they? Absolutely. He studied at Bronx Community College and had toured the world with George McRae, as well as touring and performing with the Broadway plays Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, and Your Arms Too Short to Box With God. Love those titles. Absolutely. Terrific. By the way, he's currently employed as a, a school district in California where he now lives with his wife and son so the Bowie connection then according to Carlos Alomar he said it's 1975 we were rehearsing in a small studio somewhere in Hollywood before moving over to Cherokee Studios to record what would later become Station to Station Dennis Davis a drummer had spoken to me about a friend of his who played bass from Queens called George Murray George was attending Bronx Community College and met Dennis through a mutual musician and friend he says uh, George was tall lanky soft-spoken and indeed very cool someone you wouldn't mind touring with for months or uh, to get to know. If I could describe him as a piece of fabric, as you do with people, absolutely, uh, I would describe him as silk, smooth, silky, organic. This brother always brought warmth and light and he was quite the striking figure too, at over six feet tall while wearing an Abraham Lincoln type top hat. So he was tall, but the hat was ginormous yes. as well. So he looked he looked like he was almost on stilts when he yeah. was playing on stage with Bowie and he was a, an absolute dude, wasn't he? Yeah. So yeah, the, uh, the damn trio, as it became known, you just mentioned, recorded the next six albums. So you got Station to Station, Low, Heroes and Lodger, plus the live recording of Stage, and then the last album recorded with the damn trio was Scary Monsters in 1980. And uh, Bowie also brought them in for The Idiot as well, didn't he? So uh, they were the go-to guys, definitely. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The A to Z of David Bowie with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. G is for Glastonbury. Okay, and uh, as usual, credit where credit's due. We're going to use a lot of material sourced from a David Hepworth article, mm. aren't we? So, mm. hello, David. Uh, so, in June 1971, Andrew Kerr was 38. So, he was a well-heeled Bohemian member of the landed gentry and a good friend of Winston Churchill's eldest son, Randolph. Okay, so he'd been to the 1970 Isle of Wight Festival, and he just recognised that there might be an opportunity for him and his landowning pals to stage a similar event. So, it, it seems crazy, really, but the original site that they were thinking of was still. Stonehenge. Mm. Now these days, I've not, I've never been to Stonehenge. Haven't you? No, oh, you should go. It's great. I'm sure I should. Uh, but at this point, it's, it's all blocked off now, isn't it? It's yeah. Blocked off, and you yeah. can't get to. It. But mm. in those days, it, it wasn't. You could just go to it, and you could, if you want, take a hammer and chisel down, and and just, you know, take a bit home with you if you wanted. <laughs> and um, I'm sure that people did. Bad people. Um, yeah. But um, so they were looking at it as a, a possible venue, and then they decided that it just wasn't worth the risk. Really. No, there's too much arable land surrounding it, wasn't it? They didn't yeah. Really fancy it at all so they quickly dropped that idea which is probably a good thing when you think about it and so somebody suggested using the nearby Worthy Farm which was run by a guy who looked for all the world like a character from Lord of the Rings this despite the fact he was still in his mid-30s Yeah but it wasn't such a, a mad kind of shot in the dark because if we remember Michael Evis had already held a small festival on that land a year mm. before so and that was an effort to raise some cash to pay off his mortgage Yeah, but it, it, that failed and he was actually out of pocket by the time that they'd done it and so the Toffs thought, right, OK, let's get involved. So alongside Arabella Churchill, mm. another bulldog offspring, they approached Evis to see if they could collaborate in making a more successful venture with their money for investment and his land. Now, yeah. Evis was suspicious at first, but he probably had little choice because he'd already tried and failed. That's right. So enter a guy who's been mentioned several times already on this podcast, Jeff Dexter. So he was the go-to guy, the DJ, the fixer at the UFO Club, whose job it was to bring in the acts to perform. You know, he talked about trying to get Pink Floyd in, even the Grateful Dead, who were then recorded at the Chateau de Reville in uh, Paris, where Bowie would later work, of course. None of that happened. So, and this was, you know, in a pattern that was to merge in all walks of life from the decades to come, and indeed decades previous to this, the landed gentry wanted the peasants, i.e. the bands, to pay for nothing. Yeah, but, but they were going to charge in. Yes, that was a, That was a deal, wasn't it? So you, that's already a bit suspicious, isn't it? But uh, it had a new name as well. They started to call it the Glastonbury Fair, which has something to do with something mythological, apparently. <laughs> oh, this is really in-depth. Oh, we really are. Tell so, you what. so according to David Hepworth here, Glastonbury's infrastructure was very basic. The stage cost £1,100, which seemed like a great deal. However, during the set by uh, Quintessence, who could always be relied upon to arrive accompanied by everybody in Notting Hill. It was moving so much, the designer was forced to wander amongst the musicians, requesting that those not directly related to the performance get down. Yeah, the lavatories, this makes me oh. laugh, the lavatories were holes in the ground above which the patrons perched on scaffolding poles, mm. right? The stage lighting was inadequate unless boosted by the arc lights that David Putnam and Nick Rogue's film crew brought along with them. Now... Uh, 
this is strange because it, I've been to a festival. I don't like festivals. I just I don't get on. With I it. don't like them either. But I, I wasn't that long ago that I was in a scenario where you are. I don't want to be too graphic about this, but you are. Please, you, you are hanging onto a bit of scaffolding and, oh. and hoping for the oh. <laughs> hoping for the best <laughs> with with an empty oil tanker below you. Oh. So I don't mean a shit by that. I mean a drum. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that. How desperate were you? <laughs> right. It's a big old unit, that, isn't it? <laughs> uh, but, yes, yeah, so, I mean, the Shire Horses, a, a, a horrible band that Mark Radcliffe and I had in 1997. <laughs> we played uh, at Glastonbury, and, uh, and and it was the same scenario, funnily enough. So the stage, uh, it couldn't cope with just... We were quite overweight, I suppose. Right. And it had been raining, right. and the stage started to sink. So we were the very first... or oh, the second band on, on the Friday morning. And a lot of people did turn up to see us. Don't know why. And it was so muddy that the stage started to sink. Wow. And uh, they, they shut the stage down for the rest of the day. Wow. Or pretty much the rest of the day. But, you know, he hadn't moved on that much since then. Well, you'd think it would, wouldn't you? But uh, clearly not. There was a documentary made about the original Glastonbury called Glastonbury Fair, co-directed by Nick Rogue, as we mentioned, one of his earliest films. Yep. Uh, you should probably go and see it. The crowd there estimated to be between seven and 10,000, so not a bad turnout whatsoever. And the oh. other acts, uh, Fairport Convention, Family, Traffic... Bowie, of course, Melanie, Edgar Broughton Band. And so David Bowie had appeared on Top of the Pops a week before uh, playing piano for Peter Noon, who was performing Bowie's song, Oh You Pretty Things, which was mm. a big hit. And at this point in time, David Bowie had just gotten together with Mick Ronson, Woody Woodmansey and Trevor Boulder. Yeah, fashion-wise... Gone was the young man that many people might have recognised, you know, with the curly hair, the folky that used to populate the uh, Beckenham Arts Lab. All of a sudden, Bowie had got into fashion, big style. And he just looked amazing with a big floppy hat uh, and the blouses and all the rest of it. So Bowie and his wife Angie travelled to Glastonbury, apparently by train, getting off at a remote country station and attempting to walk to the site. There are shots of Davy Bowie leaving the farmhouse, actually, mm. and he isn't suitably attired for such meanderings, is he? Not <laughs> well, at all. And no. there's also, I mean, you know, within an article here, there's a great uh, photograph of Davy Bowie wearing the, uh, the the dress, the mm. legendary dress, yeah. the man who sold the world, and, uh, and the big boots and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, I mean, that should be wellies and, you know... <laughs> a raincoat, a probably. Raincoat, sensible definitely. rain. Instead, of course, he had Oxford bags, very, very unsuitable shoes, and a three musketeers hat. Bowie's appearance at Glastonbury that year came at the crack of dawn. Five o'clock in the morning, he's on stage. Yeah, and he performed only with Mick Ronson, and the material really was from Hunky Dory. There were some mm. other bits as well on there. He, he performed Memory of a Free Festival, which was a highlight, apparently. Uh, and he also did his version of OU Pretty Things and Kooks and Changes, song for Bob Dylan. You can imagine that uh, Bowie's in there, in the farmhouse, like, you know, hanging out with Michael Evis, you know, perhaps drinking a bit of red wine here and there. Oh, bit Where's mead. Mick when all this is going on? He's probably in a tent. Yes, of course. Festival was considered a success and there was a triple album that came out, which is highly collectible if you've got them on vinyl. I love this, though. This is, um, uh, I mean, there's a newsletter which was, which was sent out at the time for people to try and cope with the harsh realities of Glastonbury, wasn't there? Yeah, well, it's good that they embraced this at that point in time because mm. it would be very uh, irresponsible and easy just to do it and then go. I mean, they also did the same thing at Hyde Park where they, you know, when the Stones played there and there was between 250,000 and 500,000 people, they encouraged people to clean up after themselves, yes. you know. Yeah. But this is a newsletter. Uh, well, we did it. We turned the clouds into sunlight and we know that's good. The fair is a beautiful event. Now let's make the place beautiful. Volunteers are badly needed for rubbish disposal in many different locations. Will you pick up the vibe? 
vibes for a tidy fair, collect three minutes worth of trash and we have an awesome 30,000 minutes worth of work done. Last night, Tuesday the 23rd, a car toured the camping areas at fairly regular intervals. It's a hassle thrasher. If you run into a hassle with anything at night, stop the car and tell the driver. Your woes are thus transmitted to the hassle thrashing machine wow. in the farm and sorted out. Well, brilliant. Uh, night trippers to Glastonbury wading through the green corn are costing our neighbour hundreds of pounds and hundreds of broken plants. Be gentle. Give the man something nicer than weeds for a harvest. Uh, talking of harvest, there's enough food to go round, but water can be stretched by using it very carefully. Uh, actually, it goes on, we haven't had a bad scene with either food or water. Can you share yours with your neighbour today in togetherness with a capital T? Break bread with a strange soul. It isn't a stranger at all. Cars are useful, but maybe there are too many underfoot. Yeah, a beautiful person handed in a British passport and a purse. This makes three passports now waiting collection at the local Fuzzwagon. <laughs> that is Fuzzwagon. Uh, two of these are American. If you know you have lost yours, you can get it back from the uh, farm today if you call in or tomorrow. And the best bit is, hey, who saw a UFO on solstice night? A researcher wants to hear from you if you did. Drop a line into the farm, lower office today. Win a trip to Venus. I can tell you what, I can imagine that there were hundreds and hundreds oh, and hundreds yeah the people who did see a UFO on that night. Absolutely. We've got to skip forward as well, haven't we, to the year 2000 and suddenly Bowie is making a return to Glastonbury, unexpectedly as well, it has to be said. Uh, took some of the dark arts though to make it happen. So this is coming from uh, Bowie's agent at the time, a guy called John Giddings. He said David was doing a drum and bass tour, which wasn't the most interesting performance and he came up with a genius idea that he should play Glastonbury, so he invited Michael Evis. It was at the Astoria in London and Michael walked out halfway through saying it was the most boring thing he'd ever seen so we didn't know what to do about that at all. Yeah, so uh, John Giddings and Alan Edwards, who uh, also looked after Bowie, a uh, great fella, hello Alan, he said, uh, we had the Spice Girls playing Manchester the next day and Alan Edwards introduced me to the guy from the Sunday Times who said, have you got any gossip? And I said, well, Glastonbury are begging David Bowie to headline. So Michael was bombarded with phone calls. This did happen, I did check it out. And right. it's, it's actually how it went. So uh, it wasn't supposed to happen and Michael Evis wasn't particularly bothered about it happening. And I think he was pretty ungracious about it actually was he really but it okay. was such a landmark uh, mm. event wasn't it bowie appearing there and, and now it is a stuff of legend yeah absolutely so uh, edwards sort of interjected he said by the end of the day he said michael Evis was very much on board he said oh yeah we always wanted bowie it went quiet for about three days and we were very nervous and then i got this message from david and it said you naughty boys don't ever do that anything like that again thanks though yeah and uh, you know i mean it is one of those kick yourself kind of uh, scenarios because i could have gone to this i really i really could have gone to it and i really should have gone to it uh, but didn't. Uh -uh. And so Andrew Kerr, who was a part and parcel of the organisation, he wrote some various overviews about the uh, Glastonbury Festival. And he said, The stage at Glastonbury Fair was built in the form of a great pyramid on a powerful blind spring in the hope that it would draw to it beneficial astrological influence onto our tired planet. We hope that people will go away feeling a lot better for the experience, more creative, happier and more appreciative of the wonders of the universe. Not in a heavy way, but proving that life really is a gas. Unfortunately, you can't put anything on these days without it costing a lot of bread. <laughs> and he goes on. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes.
G is for Bob Grace. Yeah, Bob Grace. He was a son of a theatrical agent whose clients included people like Bob Hope and Roy Castle. His dad's work brought him into contact with Cliff Richard and the Shadows and the Stones. So Grace soon found himself sort of escorting visiting American artists like Dionne Warwick and the Shangri-Las and the Isleys to TV show appearances. But his really big lift-off moment was when he joined the promotion department at EMI in 1965 and he's uh, started working on the Beatles' Revolver and also the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. I mean, no better place to work, really, at that mm. point in time, wouldn't have thought. But the uh, Bowie connection is, by September 1970, Bowie's publishing deal with Essex Music had come to an end and Tony DeFries, his manager, uh, was looking for a new deal. So Lawrence Myers suggested Bob Grace of Chris and arranged a meeting. Well, fair enough. And so Grace had been taken on a year earlier by Chrysalis as head of their publishing company. Yeah, OK. So Bowie and Angie went to see Bob Grace, played him Holy Holy, which he absolutely loved. He'd also been a fan of Space Oddity. And he said later that he took Bowie on despite everybody telling me not to, that he was a has-been. OK, yeah. this is him talking in 1985. He said, This man with shoulder-length hair and a long blue coat which touched the floor, looking very much like Lauren Bacall, paid me a cassette demo of Holy Holy, which I liked a lot. I wanted to sign him straight away. Uh, David treated the meeting just like an interview. I mean, he was interviewing me. Yeah, that's brilliant, that. So in October 1970... Davy Bowie and Tony DeFries met Grace and Chris Wright at Chrysalis to sign the publishing deal. Uh, and so, yeah, Chrysalis saw that Bowie was a one-hit wonder, really. But one, he had talent, they knew yeah. that, they could see that. And he had a new album recorded as well. So, uh, apparently, Wright, he balked at Tony DeFries' asking price of £5,000. That was a lot for the time, to be honest. It was a lot, but that yeah. was a pretty much par for the course for Tony mm. DeFries, wasn't he? He was always pushing it, you know. Yeah. But he did agree. It was Bob Grace who said, actually, I think this is worth it. We should do it, because he believed in David Bowie. So they, he then arranged for uh, David and the band to record some demos at Radio Luxembourg Studios because it was cheap. Yeah, absolutely. So this is where Bowie starts working up a lot of the songs that ended up on Hunky Dory uh, going forward to November 1970, a month after signing a five-year publishing deal with Chrysalis and the day after recording Holy Holy at Island Studios. Uh, Bowie wrote the following letter to Grace, which is cause, like a CV. This is what I've done so far, just filling him in on what he's been up to. It's interesting that newspapers sort of picked up on this in sort of 2013 when the next day came out. But I know for a fact it's, it's been published in Kevin Can's Any Day Now book, which is an incredible tone we've discussed a, a few years earlier. But he's basically saying it's addressed, you know, Bowie's address in Haddon Hall. He says, Dear Bob, I was born in Brixton and went to some schools thereabout and studied art. Then I went into an advertising agency, which I didn't like very much. Then I left and joined some rock and roll bands playing saxophone. And I sang some, which nobody liked very much. Uh, as I was already a beatnik, I had to be a hippie, and I was very heavy and wrote a lot of songs on some beaches and some people liked them. Then I recorded Space Oddity and made some money and spent it, which everybody liked. Now I'm 24, I'm married, I'm not at all heavy, and I'm still writing, and my wife is pregnant, which I like very much. Signed, Love David. Yeah, so according to an account by Bowie biographer Paul Trinker, the first outsider to hear Oh You Pretty Things was Bob Grace. And uh, so this is it. He said, I got up about four in the morning with the song. And I had to get it out of my head. Now, this was just before the music trade fair, Medem, at the time. And so I could get free use of Radio Luxembourg Studios. So I said, you can come up, I can record an interview with you for Medem, and we can do the demo. Now, the tape, recorded the same day, featured Bowie playing piano and singing accompaniment and only the jingling of his bracelets, which would uh, amount to <laughs> percussion, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Bob Gray said it was stunning. I said, what should we do with this? And he said, oh, if we could get a cover. So I said, Mickey Most is at Medem. I can get to go and see him. 
Now, this is interesting because Bowie had bumped into Mickey Mouse quite a few times throughout the 60s, and Mickey Mouse just wasn't interested. He gave him no change whatsoever. But he didn't mention this to Bob Grace, because he wouldn't, would you? No. So Grace goes along there, and he meets up with Mickey Mouse in Cannes. Uh, he says, how it worked with Mickey was, you'd play him a song on some awful dance-set stereo system, and he'd normally give you about 10 seconds and go, no, folklore was, if you listened to all of it, you're in with a chance. He said, but with our demo, he listened to the whole thing, turned around and went, smash! I love it. Uh, and later that day, he phones up Peter Noon, who was, of course, the Herman's Hermit singer, on the verge of splitting up the band. And he said, I've just heard your first solo hit. So he was convinced he had this massive hit. And he was, it he proved was right. right. He, he was, was absolutely right. So after Davy Bowie had been off to America, he came home and using the chrysalis money, he hired a new PR for £7 a week. Now, this was Bill Harry, mm. who was uh, a mate of uh, John Lennon's, wasn't he? A schoolmate of his. Yeah, that's and, right. And uh, he said, Bob Grace told me Tony DeFries had lost interest and David needed to get things moving. And so uh, that was, you know, it, again, Bowie looking around. And you've got Tony DeFries there, who has not had Bowie under his charge for very long. Yeah but are taking his eye off the ball. Mm. And the, the strange thing is, it also emerges a little bit further down the line, that uh, Tony DeFries had scarpered to America at one point. Yeah. He's got his eye on Stevie Wonder, who was about to be out of contract. Yeah, that's right. So, so you've got Davy Bowie yeah. flailing about, not, not a star at this point, and uh, kind of a, a little bit rudderless apart from Bob. Yeah, clearly looking for people to guide him. So one of the things he did after employing Bill Harry through Bob Grace was he gave them mood boards to illustrate what he wanted to do. And then they commissioned some photo shots by the famous photographer Brian Ward, yep. uh, including there's a great shot of Bowie posing as the Sphinx, which is, which is just a wonderful classic piece of work. shot. Yeah. So, um, and you have to say, for a short while, while Tony DeFries was out of the picture, Grace was more or less acting as Bowie's manager, certainly as champion. Whilst you know the whole Stevie Wonder business was going on, Tony DeFries was out in the States trying to become uh, something other than Bowie's manager or something as well as. But he defended his activity later, did DeFries, by claiming he was just really waiting, just biding his time until Bowie's contract with Mercury was up in June of that year. Uh, but in the meantime, though, Grace is just right on it. So in February 71, he arranges some sessions again at Radio Luxembourg, where Bowie records early versions of Moon Age Daydream and Hang On To Yourself, which was for the Arnold Corns project. It was, yeah. And uh, and eventually it seems that his new client overstayed his welcome with Grace because he said <laughs> he just wouldn't leave me alone. He even got the keys from the porter to my flat and was waiting for me there. He wanted me to manage him and even acted like I was his manager. And also there's a great story of him going uh, with uh, Bowie to the hospital to see Angie Bowie, because mm. there's Zowie Bowie, Zowie Bowie, Zowie Bowie, who knows, yeah. uh, had just been born. And the story being, whether it's right or wrong, is that Bowie was uh, cooing a little baby for ages, which wasn't actually his offspring. It's the wrong one. <laughs> the wrong one. That's, that's the story. And so while we're on G, of course, Grace was also part of the small entourage that travelled with Bowie to Glastonbury that summer. And as Bowie's momentum grew, De Vries arranged a meeting. Obviously, he was had his suspicions after a while, didn't he? And he thought, hang on, I'm missing out on something here. De Vries arranges a meeting with Chrysalis and he just wasn't happy. Grace said later, he said, look, you've been trying to steal my client, which I hadn't. He said he realised that David was a lot closer to me than him. I apologise, I said sorry. I said, I'm just trying to do my job as a publisher. I think he was a bit of an intimidating character, wasn't he, Tony? By all accounts. Anyway, yeah, and it sounds like Bob Grace was a real kind of old school guy. Mm. So, yeah, you can yeah. imagine him not being so happy. Although Grace did introduce Bowie to a young band on Christmas called Chameleon. I mean, the irony, the fact that Bowie was called the Chameleon of Rock right. for so many years and hated it. So Bowie gave him a demo of Star, which ended up on uh, Ziggy, of course. They recorded it and never officially released it. That's right. And also, I mean, an important uh, role that he played, did Bob Grace, was he actually came up with the title for the Hunky Dory album, didn't mm. he? He said it was a landlord in a pub, The Bear in Escher. Uh, who, who used the phrase all the time. Because it wasn't a common phrase at that point in time. It is now, isn't it? But at that point, early 70s, it was, it was an Americanism. The A to Z of David Bowie was written and 
presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Gus Dudgeon, The Glass Spider Tour, Reeves Gabrell, George Underwood, Guy Pilard. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.